Jesus put him to death, but found none. <coughs> For many bore false witness against him, but the testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you this Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witness? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and blindfold him and to beat him and say to him, Prophecy. And the other officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now as Peter was blowing in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter blowing <coughs> himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you are saying. And he went out to the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by I said to Peter, Again, surely you are one of them, for you are Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then you begin to curse and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to be back with our people after being gone this week. Thank you for bringing our Ecuador team back. Thank you for the good work the flies are doing there in obedience to your call to the nations. I pray as we consider this text that you would use it in our, our lives. Thank you for the good confession that Christ makes, that he is the Christ. He can't deny that. And we would not want him to. And Father, thank you for, in the midst of that, he embraced all the consequences that would come with declaring the truth. He would be spit upon. He would be struck. He would be mocked. He'd be ridiculed. He would endure false witness. He certainly endured injustice. Father, thank you for recording Peter's denials. For some of us have walked in this room today and we wonder... Are there some sins that you can't forgive? We too have been faithless. And we wonder if that's the end of our story. And so we need to see what's recorded here about Peter so that we can be reminded of the hope of the gospel that above all it is about Jesus' faithfulness. I pray that you would use your word in our lives as always not just to inform us but to transform us. I pray that it would fuel praise. The height of theology should be praise and worship. That we see who you are, we see what you've done. How can we not praise you? So would you produce that in us as we walk through this text? And we pray not just for ourselves, but Father, all over our city today, sister churches are gathered. And God, we pray that the word would be clear and effectual. We pray that you would empower the preaching of your word the listening to your word and the responding to the word. That saints in our city would be equipped further in the gospel and that those who maybe for the first time will hear the gospel and respond. Father, we pray you would use your word all over our, our city today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If it's your first Sunday with us, we've been walking through the book of Mark, and we've been doing so all year. We took a little break before Christmas, but we've picked it back up in January, and and often, um, I didn't grow up in a liturgical or a, a church, and so sometimes Easter would sneak up on us. The, the beauty of preaching through Mark is that we've been able to spend months in the final week of Jesus's life, and 
where we pick up today. Jesus has been arrested and he endures his first trials and then obviously Peter's denial. And I'm grateful uh, for what we will see in this text because there have been times in my life that I've been tempted to deny Jesus in front of others. I've been tempted to not identify as one of his followers or to even keep my Christianity on the DL, as some would say, or down low. Um, but as often been said, our relationship with Jesus is personal, but it's never intended to be private. And the question is, why in those moments when we're tempted to deny Jesus, why? Why, why are we tempted to be secret? What in that moment is more important to us that would cause us to deny our relationship with Jesus rather than to declare it? Uh, was whatever that is that was important to us in that moment or moments more worthy of our allegiance to Jesus? And the answer to that is no. There's nothing more worthy of allegiance than, than Jesus. How many of you have perhaps broken a commitment to the Lord that you made? Anyone made one in a room and then broke it in the parking lot or on the way home? And we know that Peter certainly made some commitments to the Lord and he was not able to sustain those. And perhaps Peter was even surprised. Maybe you've been surprised at not being able to keep a commitment that you made to the Lord. So I'm really grateful that Scripture doesn't whitewash or doesn't scrub away failures. I'm grateful for Ezekiel 16 being one of the most graphic texts in the whole Bible about Israel's unfaithfulness, even to the point that they were slaughtering their children by offering them to gods that didn't exist. And at the end of that chapter, obviously God does not abandon his people but still atones for them because many of us as i said want to know can our sins really be forgiven can they really be taken care of and here in our text we have an incredible shining moment of christ and we have an incredible dark moment of peter and in both we're going to be able to see the heart of the gospel jesus is the one who will tell the truth and be persecuted for it Peter's the one who's going to deny the truth, and he deserves wrath, but he's going to be pardoned ultimately. And so as we jump into our text, if we were to summarize it, I've, I've put it there for you at the top of your notes. No matter the cost, let us join Jesus in his confession that he is the Christ, and we are his followers. No matter the cost, let us join Jesus in his confession that he is the Christ, and that we are his followers. It's going to be an incredible passage for Jesus because as Paul read, all of these others had gathered together. You look in verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he's sitting with the guards, warning himself at the fire. You have Jesus who's encountering all the scribes, chief priests, all that are, are there. And then you have two followers, Mark doesn't record it, but Peter and John actually come close. Peter is going to be the one that's highlighted. And the one who's probably closest to him is right there near to Jesus and then is ultimately going to deny him. Jesus is all alone in this text. And so if you've ever felt like you were all alone in your journey of sanctification or all alone in standing for the, what's right and good, what you're going to see is Jesus in this text being the one who is all alone and he alone is faithful. He alone is faithful. There are three different groups that we'll see. We're going to see the religious leaders corruptly disregard the truth. We're going to see Jesus courageously declare the truth. And we're going to see Peter cowardly deny the truth. And in case you didn't know, it's kind of archaic to use cowardly as an adverb. I looked it up, but we're using it anyway because that's what he did. All right. <clears throat> I've formed our teaching points in the form of a prayer request because this is really what we should be moved to say to the Lord. And the first prayer request is this, Father, help us to never corruptly disregard the truth of who Jesus is. And I want you to consider a few aspects of this passage. First of all, with the religious leaders, consider their corruption. So it says that they led Jesus to the high priest in verse 53. But what Mark doesn't record is he has actually endured a trial just before this. When he is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, he is taken to the former high priest, who is the current high priest's father-in-law. Uh, and so you have, you have Annas, and he was taken there, and Annas questions him, and they're going to slap Jesus around. And so ultimately, when you read in verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest. This is the second trial that he's had, at least by the ecclesiastical, the church group, 
Over all in all, Jesus is going to endure six hearings in a matter of hours. You couldn't get that in our day, you know, uh, if you tried, right? And the granddaddy tried as judge. He, he tried to get as many as he could in finishing up his term as a judge. Jesus is going to endure six hearings in a matter of hours, three from the religious leaders, three from the political authorities, and much about those is going to be unjust and illegal. Unjust and illegal. The Jewish leaders, for their part, had no real concern for justice or fairness. They just want Jesus dead, and they're willing to do whatever it takes for that to happen. And what's interesting, when you read this, read it again. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, and the elders, and the scribes came together. Who in Israel were supposed to be the wisest and the holiest among the people of Israel? Any guesses? Let me read the group to you one more time. The high priest, all the chief priests, and the elders and the scribes came together. But they're going to operate in what, in many ways, would be cold-blooded manipulation. They, they know what they're doing. And don't you know that people are in danger when the ones who are supposed to be the wisest and holiest are the evil or, and worst and wretched among them. And so they carry out what they think is in the best interest of the country, which just so happens to coincide with their best interest. Caiaphas is going to say, it's better that one should die than, than all should die. And so he sees this as the best interest. But it's also the best interest for the religious leaders because Jesus has been a threat to them. If you have ever suffered injustice, no one is more able to identify with you than Jesus. And the anger and pain, Jesus is the one most uh, qualified to comfort you in the midst of that. He was a victim of lies and innuendos, frame-ups, and above all, a rigged jury. It says in verse 55, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. At least it lets you know their motives from the front, right? They weren't seeking justice. They were seeking what they wanted, the verdict they had already decided. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but the testimony did not agree. Ultimately, some stood up, says in verse 57, and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Have you ever heard someone quote you, but they didn't say what you, what you said? Right? Maybe your children, perhaps. Well, mama said, and they tell that to daddy, and daddy didn't hear what mama actually said, and then when daddy realized what child said, mama said, mama said, I didn't say that, Right? Uh, I've come away at camps preaching sermons and, and students will tweet something and they'll be like, quote, at Landon Dowden. I'm like, man, I wish I had said that in the sermon. You know, that would have been even better had I said that you know, rightly. Jesus technically did not say he would destroy the temple, did he? Do you remember? We walked through this earlier Mark. He actually says, destroy this temple, meaning what? His body, and I will rebuild it in three days. And so they see, we see that they twist his words, but even in there, they can't agree. It says in verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony didn't agree. So they couldn't get on the same page. Whatever brother decided to twist this, the other one twisted another way, and they couldn't bop it at the same time as they were twisting it to get it straight in the middle, right? And so what, what you don't want to miss is uh, that as you go back to it, verse 56... Their testimony didn't agree. Their testimony did not agree, verse 59. And the reason that they're doing all this in the dark, too, is for many reasons, the Sabbath is coming, and they don't want to break the Sabbath. They want to get all this handled before the Sabbath, plus it's the Passover, and they can do this while all these people are in town, then it will be best for them. And what I don't want you to miss is that they're keeping all the lesser things and missing the main thing. I don't want us to be those who keep the minutiae and miss the Messiah. That's what's happening here, right? <laughs> they're, they're worried about, they're seeking false witnesses, but they're in agreement among them, so we can't use them, right? But had there been agreement among the false witnesses, do you think they would have used them? Yes, they would have used them. But they didn't want to set aside the law from the Old Testament. You have to have two or three witnesses, and they must agree. So even in the seeking of false witnesses, they're following the, the law here. They want to keep the Sabbath when the Lord of it is right in front of them right in front of them and so they're expediting everything in order not to break it all the while he's standing there and so jesus is ultimately going to be the one who confesses who he is 
but they're going to use it as a means for his crucifixion rather than his coronation and it's really grieving because the one whom they were supposed to be seeking and serving they're now seeking his death they blatantly disregard the truth and what i hope is not true of us that we are disregarding or even denying some aspect of truth about jesus just because we don't like it just because it's not convenient or because it's a threat to our kingdom or our power and so they're following all of these other things and missing the main thing has that ever happened in religion has that ever happened in baptism has that ever happened in churches yes we can focus on all of the lesser things and miss the main thing of christ and we want to keep christ the main thing and we want to make sure that we're not putting away truth about him just because we don't like it as you go on to read the high priest gets fatigued with all this so finally he just asks jesus blatantly and he puts him under an oath matthew records it but he says it says in verse 61 after all these all these uh false accusations it says in verse 60 the high priest stood up in the midst and asked jesus have you no answer to make what is it that these men testify against you but he remained silent and made no answer again the high priest asked him are you the christ the son of the blessed see don't miss this he's being careful not to say god's name he's he's maneuvering even in the he's keeping what was important to him while not while trying to kill kill the kill obviously jesus and he asked are you the christ the son of the blessed the way that matthew records it is he puts jesus under oath where jesus in essence he can't deny who he is and so jesus responds i am and then he adds to it, you will see that the Son of Man see at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. So the high priest tore his garments. What's interesting is he actually, there were laws forbidding that, but he disregards that. It's all drama at this point. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. In the end, it would be his own confession that would lead to his condemnation. But he's embracing all that comes with that. Spurgeon, when he considered the antics of the high priest and the chief priests and all the scribes and the elders here's what he says it makes me tremble as i think of how eminent we may be in the service of god and yet how awfully we may be enemies of the christ of god let none of us think that even though we even clamor up to the highest places in the church we are therefore saved we may be high priests and wear the urim and the thummim and put on the breastplate with all its wondrous mystic stones and bind around us the curious girdle of the ephod and yet for all that we may be ringleaders in expressing contempt of god and of his christ and my prayer to that is father please keep us from contempt or worse yet condemnation of jesus in any way that we would not be guilty of wanting to maintain our our own kingdoms or our own power or there be things of jesus that that he declares and we just disregard it we just ignore it we ignore that part of the truth so i want you to consider their corruption but while you do that you also need to consider god's control jesus is not going to the cross because god likes the power to stop it jesus goes to the cross because he's desiring to fulfill the word of god when jesus was arrested in the garden and peter strikes with the sword uh jesus you do realize we could call down legions of army of angels right now right you you understand that i'm not overcome by their power and so even there the the control but though these trials are corrupt they are still under god's control and so is every other court and trial in our world even though they're corrupt they're still under his control and we know that we've we've read it before in acts 4 peter will say for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed both herod and pontius pilate along with the gentiles and the peoples of israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place so all of their evil disregard for truth their petty protecting of their temporary power ultimately was under the sovereign control of the lord and he was going to use their evil for the greatest good the world has ever known now how he does that i don't know I don't know how he uses their evil choices to ultimately reign, but that's why he's sovereign. That's why he's omniscient. That's why he's omnipotent. And we sing it all the time in the song that Aaron wrote, even what the enemy meant for evil, you turn it for our good and for your glory, right? 
And so even though you see the corruption, don't think that Jesus is powerless to do anything here. Jesus is submitting because ultimately all of it is fulfilling the plan the Father has for him to be our substitute. And so consider their corruption so that we won't be corrupt with them. Also consider God's control so that we don't feel hopeless even in our day when we see injustice and we see courts that that may not act in the cause of what's good and right. We need to know that above all is a God who's sovereign and reigning and working all things according to his plan, which is always best. And then last, would you just consider Christ's character? <clears throat> it says, you have heard this blasphemy. They all condemned him as deserving to death. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with many blows. D.A. Carson has written to say, in all the various trials and mockery that Jesus underwent, his character stood out more and more clearly against the backdrop of moral corruption and failed loyalty and cheap cruelty around it. When we're told in Romans 12 not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good, we have no clearer example than Christ and the good hope of the Gospels. We don't just have his example, we have his empowering. That when there's people who are expressing evil to us, because that's what's happening, we don't resort to evil. Because then there's no difference in them and us. But we overcome evil with what? Good. And the only way we do that is through the gospel. And so, as you see this, consider his character. While all around is corruption, he's not panicked. And while all around is evil, he's not returning it with evil. Because sometimes that's what you and I want to do. Have you ever endured a, a false accusation? And, and, and what is it that we often want to do we we want to defend ourselves we'll see that in, in the very next truth so the second prayer request from this text is father help us to always courageously declare the truth of who jesus is if you're ocd you'll notice that one of my sub points does not have a c in it and it's this one consider jesus's silence the rest of them all have c's uh and sometimes when you when you have alliteration people will slavishly try to change the word just to fit it in i didn't want to do that consider his calmness consider his quiet he's silent all right so it starts with the letter s so there you go consider his silence it's what he does yet even about this testimony they didn't agree and we've already said in verse 60 aren't you going to answer in verse 61 but he remained silent and made no answer as the trials advance he's going to remain pilot herod all of them are going to comment about jesus's silence Jesus doesn't defend himself against the false accusations. I love Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers points out, he says, even when we've done something wrong and know we're wrong, still the first words that tend to form in our mouths are words of excuse and self-defense. And what about when we're right but blamed for being wrong? Most of us would be quick to speak up and protest our innocence. Yet here's Jesus, and he's enduring lie after lie after lie, and not once does he say, no, that's not right. No, what had happened? The woman you gave me, God, all right? He doesn't resort to any of these things. He's silent, even though he was slandered. Uh, before I came to Trace Crossing, uh, there was a church that I had had uh, uh, conversations with for really months. They were in Chattanooga. And through the course of conversations, the, the search team felt uh, unanimous that I, I should be their next pastor so they transitioned from the search team and handed me off to the elders one of their elders called and had about an eight minute conversation with me and i had an issue with their church covenant because it seemed in their church covenant there was a statement that you all had to believe the same way about certain aspects of how the end will work out and we want a church covenant christ should be the dividing line of membership not what we believe about the beginning not what we believe about the end but what we believe about Christ above all. And so because I questioned that, it caused him to ask me some questions. Again, an eight-minute conversation, very thorough. In turn, I would find out that uh, he misrepresented that entire conversation to the rest of the elders, and then that sealed the deal. They, they, they'd moved on. It, it shut the door on that. And the head of the search team called me, and, and he was grieved, and and three of the oldest men on that search team came to the camp that I was preaching and wept and, and prayed over me. 
uh, really feeling like uh, things had not been handled well. When the search team, I had the search team called me and told me what that elder said, he slandered me and I was angry. And my immediate reaction in the flesh was, that's not what I said. And that's not what I believe. I went, I was at Ridgecrest is where I was preaching in North Carolina. I went from the parking lot where I'd answered that call and the first text that I laid my eyes on when I walked back in the room was Jesus being silent before these false accusations. I wish I was smart enough to have planned that, but that's how the the spirit works. And God used that more than anything else to remind me that sometimes God uses even the lies of others to advance his plan and promises that he will use even the evil for our good, whatever that is. Had I been there, I would not have come here. I would have been serving there and would have missed the opportunity to be here and to shepherd Trace Crossing in the journey. Now, in God's providence, that elder that lied to me, lied about me, he and I happened to be at the same restaurant in Wake Forest, North Carolina in January. And we'd never met. We'd never met. We figured out very quickly who each other was. And he immediately said, I'm sorry. He said, I was wrong, and I want you to forgive me. I can say of all the things I thought I'd get at that restaurant that night, it was not, it was not that. But in that, I look at Jesus in his silence, and I think, no, I want to defend myself on Twitter. No, I want to defend myself on Facebook. No, I want to defend myself to what someone says in our city. And yet here's Jesus, who had every right to defend himself. So do you know why he didn't? Do you know why Jesus is silent? Because you shouldn't just pass over that. Above all, his silence is because of his submission to be our substitute. Adrian Rogers goes on to say, if Jesus had risen up in his own defense during the trials, I believe he would have been so powerful and irrefutable in making his defense that no governor, high priest, or other legal authority on earth could have stood against him. In other words... If Jesus had taken up his own defense with the intention of refuting his accusers and proving his innocence, he would have won, but we would have lost and would have lost for all eternity. Jesus' silence is for his submission and then also in experiencing our shame. The Bible teaches us that Jesus took, when he took our sin, he took all of the punishment that goes with that. And part of that is shame. And had Jesus defended himself and protested his innocence he wouldn't have suffered any shame and that would have left us guilty and so he held back any words that would have relieved him from the shame and blame of sin he was not a sinner but he fully took our place even though they accused him of blasphemy lying sedition and then all the gospel writers just say this phrase many other things and he just took them he just took them he just took them why because his silence was a part of our substitution and ultimately for the glory of God. So consider his silence as we move toward Easter this week and this, these coming weeks. Consider his confession. Here's Jesus' affirmation. So the high priest, again, exhausted, tired of all the false witnesses, he just says to Jesus, are you him or are you not? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And here's Jesus' response in verse 62. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of answer, uh, coming with the clouds of heaven. As Jesus answered, it's not in self-defense or self-justification because of the false witnesses. He just can't deny who he is. And we are grateful for this. But what Jesus does is not what Caiaphas expected. He takes two messianic texts, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, and Psalm 110, 1 and 2, and he combines those in his answers. He says, I am, and I am the son of man that Daniel talks about, and I will be coming on the clouds that psalmist talks about. And in essence, what he does is then, for their sake, condemns himself both theologically and politically, theologically, because he blasphemes to be the son of God, but not just the son of God. When he combines these two texts, in many ways, they saw the Messiah's coming and reigning sort of in the spirit of David, but not necessarily being God of God himself in that way. 
what Jesus does, what's true of God, he's saying, it will be true of me. So it's not even just that he's claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God. He is establishing, I am God. I am God. So theologically, it would have been unbelievable blasphemy for them. And then politically, when he talks about his own kingdom, uh, obviously Rome had one emperor. And so he condemns himself in these two ways. It's his own confession. It's none of the false testimonies. It's Jesus just owning up to who he is that will lead to his condemnation and then ultimately the embracing of the consequences. Isn't it, isn't it crazy? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Who was it that they were looking for in the Old Testament to come? Wasn't it this guy? I mean, didn't they spend generations longing for the Messiah? Right? Are you him? I am. Let's kill him. Right? It's just so full of irony that they longed for him and then they kill him. So consider his confession and consider the truth of it. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Now I want you to consider the consequences because Jesus tells the truth. He declares the truth and he accepts whatever consequences come from that. And you see the beginning. He's already been beaten in the first little mock trial at the former high priest's house. He's going to later be scourged and crucified. We know this. But 65 just gives you a little summary of it. Some began to spit on him, cover his face, strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with many blows. For what? For telling the truth. For confessing that he was the Christ. Knowing what was coming. He embraced that. There'll be another trial. The Jews were not allowed to execute people. Rome made sure that before they killed anybody, Rome had to sign off on that. And Rome wasn't just a rubber stamp. So that's why they needed something that would... would pass with uh, Pilate uh, and with Herod in order to, to make sure Jesus would kill. So he's going to endure the next trial, but though he deserved worship, he received persecution and the, be- begin, the beatings begin, and what was unjust now just moves to plain old shameful. It's just shameful. Uh, as a result of confessing that uh, you uh, follow Jesus, if you ever find yourself persecuted, no one will be more comforted to more suited to comfort you than Jesus himself and empower you. And about this first phrase, some began to spit on him. Charles Spurgeon wrote a whole sermon on that. Charles Spurgeon wrote a whole sermon on that phrase. And he, he, on the end, he moves away from the context and just says certain ways that we spit on him. But there are several things that are important for us. He says, there are two or three thoughts that come to my mind when I think that these wicked men actually did spit in Christ's face. And then he describes Christ's face this way. The light of heaven, the joy of angels, the bliss of saints, and the very brightness of the Father's glory. The author of Hebrews says he is the radiance of God's glory. This is the face they're spitting in. It says, the spitting shows us first how far sin will go. If you want proof of the depravity of the heart of man, clears proof that man is utterly fallen, and that the natural heart is enmity against God, it's seen the fact they spit in Christ's face. They falsely accused him, condemned him, and hung him up as a felon that he might die upon the cross. And Spurgeon just says, why? What evil had he done? What was it in his whole life that would move them to spit in his face? Even in that moment, did his face flash with indignation against them? Did he look with contempt upon them? No, not he. For he was all gentleness and tenderness, even toward his enemies. And so Spurgeon pleads, Oh, my brothers, let us hate sin. Oh, my sisters, let us loathe sin, not only because it pierced those blessed hands and feet of our dear Redeemer, but because it dared even to spit in his face. No one can ever know all the shame the Lord of glory suffered when they did spit in his face. And then Spurgeon says, Think about his tender omnipotence of love. How could he bear this spitting when with one glance of his eye, had he been but angry, the flame might have slain them and withered them all up? So Spurgeon is saying, if he wanted, he could have just winked and consumed all of these guys with fire. And he didn't. And he says he stood still even when they spit in his face. I would submit to you and I, our sin is no less a spitting in Jesus' face. We shouldn't see it as any less. And then Spurgeon goes on to say, if ever anybody should despise us for Christ's sake, let us say to ourselves, they spit in his face. What then if they also spit in mine? If they do, I will hail reproach and welcome shame since it comes upon me for his dear sake. 
I, I belabor that for a moment because you and I, as we read these gospel accounts over and over, we can just move past very quickly. The fact that, that Spurgeon paused and contemplated just for a moment on the spit in his face. I would encourage you not to read over any of the truths about the gospel accounts of Jesus' suffering in our place. And then on top of that, they spit on him and they covered his face and they strike him. They begin to hit Jesus and then they mock him. They, they prophesy, who, who did it? Which one of us just hit you? And then the guards, as they, as they hand him off, the temple guards now receive him with many blows. They're just beating him, beating him, beating him, beating him. So Luke notes that they blasphemed him by saying many other things against him. And the mockery and physical abuse is just a foretaste of what Jesus will soon experience at the hands of the Roman soldiers. He hadn't even gotten to Rome yet. He hadn't gotten to those 500 soldiers that are going to strip him naked and mock him and beat him and scourge him. And then he hasn't even gotten to the cross yet. And there, that'll be the worst because it will be the full cup of God's wrath. Nothing Rome or the Jews could do will compare to what the Father is about to do. As Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I want us to take a moment, and I want us to go back to Isaiah, and I want to show you three verses just for your consideration in this season. Turn to Isaiah 53. There are three verses that summarize this whole section about Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. God used that verse and Peter will write, First Peter say, though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. I would encourage you to use this as a means of fuel for worship. Though oppressed, though afflicted, he's not opening his mouth trying to get out of it. Turn back just a few verses to chapter 52, verse 14. The end result of all the pummeling that Jesus is going to take Isaiah sees it before it happens. In Isaiah 52, 14, he says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You know why his form was marred? It's because of when they put the cover over him and they strike him with blows to the head and they punch him over and over, scourge him, whip him. His form was so marred beyond human semblance. We shouldn't just move past verses like this when we, when we understand the cost for all that we've sung up to this point in our service. And then there's one more. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Go back two chapters to Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is what Jesus is doing. He gave his back to those who strike and his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He didn't hide his face from disgrace and from spitting. Now why? Look at verses 7, 8, and 9 that follow that. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. You ever heard that? Luke picked that up. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. Moth will eat them up. When we consider Christ's sufferings, I hope verse 6 will be one of those, his willingness to serve. As we talk about going to India in a few weeks with our trip, we have some who've just come back from Ecuador. As we think about the gospel advancing, 
it's not going to come without suffering. And suffering takes many forms, and it may not be physical, it may be financial. Maybe that you lose your job because you stand up for Jesus. But I have to contemplate on the sufferings of Jesus, as I said at the, the launch that we had a few weeks ago, because if not, I want Christianity just to be safe and easy and comfortable. And if Christianity is safe and easy and comfortable, the gospel's not going to advance very far in us or through us. And so I hope verses like, he was so marred beyond human semblance, are not lost on us. I hope verses like, I gave my back to the whip. I gave my beard to those who pull it out. I gave my face to be spit on. Let me just ask, what were you willing to give for the gospel this past week? What are you willing to give for the gospel this coming week? We consider the sufferings of Christ so that we just don't long for safety and ease and comfort, that we are empowered by the one who so willingly gave. Which gets us to our last prayer request in our, our text. Go back to Mark 14 now. Father, help us to never cowardly deny the truth of who Jesus is and that we are his followers. We are his followers. I want you to consider Peter's confidence. Remember when Jesus foretold Peter's denial? We went over it two weeks ago. Back in uh, chapter 14. We've been in chapter 14 for three weeks. Uh, in verse 29, Peter says, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And then in verse 31, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. You see Peter's confidence, right? And then he does something incredible. He, he does try to cut, he cuts off the ear of a bro uh, in, when Jesus is arrested. There he's working against the progression of God's plan. It's Peter, you know, he can never get the timing exactly right before Pentecost. And, and so when the story picks up, though, after Gethsemane, this is what it says about Peter in our text, verse 54. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And as he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Where's Peter sitting? With the guards, right? Now, you would think Peter said, I'll never deny you. Where, where do you think Peter thought he would be? That he would have been where Jesus was in the middle of the accusation. But bro, sitting with the guards by the fire. And just a couple questions. Some I've already asked you, but have you ever found yourself doing something you said you would never do? Have you ever made a commitment to God and not kept it? I, I've made commitments to God that I kept for years, and I made commitments to God that I kept for minutes, right? Uh, and what I've discovered, if left to myself, I'm not very good at keeping commitments to God, which is why I'm grateful that the gospel is most about God keeping his commitment to us and Christ's faithfulness. This is what we celebrate and we sing each week. We don't come in here and raise hands because we have been good or faithful. We come in here and we raise hands because God has been good and faithful. Because Christ has fully kept the faith. Perhaps you found yourself doing something you didn't even think you were capable of. Have you ever done it? Maybe there was a sin that you said, you've seen other people do it and you thought, man, I'm never going to do that. And then somehow you found yourself doing it. I'm pretty sure when Peter says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you, Peter and his mind thinks there's no way I would ever do that. There's no way I'm going to ever deny you, right? But while Jesus is under fire, Peter's outside warming himself by the fire. And as Jesus confesses under immense pressure and hostility, remaining faithful, watch what it is that gets Peter to capitulate. It says this, verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls. Now, they're always threatening, aren't they? Ominous servant girls. All right? This is where I was reminded of the story of Elijah, right? Elijah, this incredible moment where he's faithful and over 400 prophets of Baal, they're consumed by fire, you know, they're slaughtered. He remains faithful. And then there's one woman that causes Elijah to run. Now, Jezebel, was, she was a piece of work, right? But one woman... Oh, while well, he'd already stood to 400 men. And here comes Peter, and mm, it's that ominous servant girl. And she sees Peter warming himself. She looked at him and says, uh, you were with Jesus, right? The Nazarene? And here's where we're like, no way Peter's going to cave. This bro said, I will die with you. I will not deny you. 
And it says in verse 66, but he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He just tries to play it off. Like, uh, what are you talking about? Uh, I don't, what, do you, I, well, who, what, what is this, right? Uh, awesome, Peter. So <clears throat> what, what, he, what he then goes on and says, I neither know or understand what you're saying. He went out the gateway and the rooster crowed and the servant girl saw him and began to say again to the bystanders, don't you love someone that won't let it go? All right? She's just like, uh, hey, I was over there. Remember we had a conversation. I just wanted to ask you again, weren't you with him? Right? And, and Peter says, um, she says this man's one of them, but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them for you are Galilean. He couldn't hide that country accent. All right? And the way he was, especially in the high priest's house, there probably wasn't a lot of country. And so Peter, like, hey, y'all, there's fire. There's fire. It feels good, right? Y'all got some marshmallows, you know? They were always like, who's this dude? Yeah? He was like, you're Galilean. We picked that up right away, you know? You know we were, we were uh, uh, at, at Walt Disney World, and Granddaddy and I were at the counter at the same time this guy was from Boston, you know? And it was easy to pick up because he was talking about parking the cars, and, you know? <laughs> and then I wasn't sure what he was talking about. I just knew he wasn't from Mississippi. So... When you and I have failed, here's what I would contend. Our level of self-reliance and self-confidence was too high and our level of self-awareness was too low. When we think, oh, I won't do that. Everything Peter thought he knew about himself, all his self-confidence and belief in his undying loyalty to his master has been shattered in lies and utter ruins. And I love J.C. Ryle. And what J.C. Ryle says, let us settle it in our minds. There is nothing too bad for the very best of us to do unless he watches, prays, and is held up by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the warning. I hope that you're not saying, even if everyone else in Trace Crossing does this, Jesus, I won't do it. You will be tempted to do it if you're not watching and praying and relying on Jesus. And so if there's anything that Peter's actions and the fact that all of them fled, it should remind us that our only hope is to lean fully on Jesus' name. Now, I, I don't want you to miss this, that he, he denies Jesus not just once, but he continues. And where the way it's written in that second one, it's like he continued to deny Jesus even in, in that moment. And so as he denies three times, obviously he slept three times in the Garden of Gethsemane when he should have been praying. He was sleeping. Much has been made about that. But here's the one I don't want you to miss. Look at what it says. It says that after that first time, in verse 68, I neither know or understand what you mean, he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Jesus told him that before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And you would think that when that rooster crowed once, there'd be something that popped into his mind. Of, Uh-oh. Uh, all right. Look, I got to I got to I got to obey. Peter missed the warning. He ignored the warning. And there have been times when I've been choosing sin that I may get a text from someone. I may get a phone call. There may be a noise to distract. And that's the moment where we choose. Are we going to hit mute? on the Lord's grace to us? Or are we going to respond and say, thank you, God, for interrupting my focus on this sin. Thank you for rescuing me from this, and I'm going to follow through. Peter ignores the warning, and we don't want to do this, which ultimately, in considering his cowardice, you've got to move to his cursing. You get to the last one, and it says this, after a little while, certainly you were one of them, you were Galilean, verse 71, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Here's what he does. He, he invokes a curse. So it's not just that Peter does what he says he will not. It's that while in doing that, he invokes a curse for God as a means of securing man's favor rather than God's. So he calls down this wrath upon himself because he wanted their approval more than the Lord's. And what's even possible, it's possible that the curse isn't just on Peter saying, let me be under his wrath if I'm lying. There is one aspect of this that he could be cursing Christ himself, which would be the ultimate blasphemy. That's how when the Romans wanted to persecute the Christians after Jesus, those who remained faithful would not curse Christ. If you wanted to save your life, you cursed Christ. And if you didn't curse Christ, then you would be punished and put to death. And so there's a thought here, there's a way that it's constructed that it, it could have been the worst of all things that Peter himself could have even cursed Christ. As if invoking wrath on himself wouldn't be bad enough, even worse would be if he cursed Christ 
that would be blasphemy. And that's where you got to pause and say, can you really come back from that? I mean, it seems pretty bad. It seems unforgivable. And he was paralyzed by the fear of men rather than fear of the Lord. I hope this week you and I will not choose the crowd over Christ. I hope that we won't fear the, the approval of man more than the approval of God. And so what happens, it says, immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. He goes outside. And, and uh, there's no doubt the words of Jesus, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. More specifically, the way that Mark writes it is, for whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So before we rush to Peter's restoration, just let that wave over you for a moment. Because Peter, at this point, still seems not to know how it's going to all turn out. All he knows is he's denied the one he's followed for three years, and he has now called down an irrevocable wrath upon himself. And he has denied Jesus in front of this group, and he knows that Jesus taught, you deny me before others, I'll deny you before the Father. And just let the hopelessness wash over you. The depth of the sin. Which then should lead us to Peter's contrition. It says that he broke down and he wept. The path of restoration requires repentance. And there are several steps of that. First of all, he remembers the word of the Lord. Remember how Jesus said. He experiences the conviction of sin. And then godly sorrow. Where it says he broke down, it literally means that he's sort of thrown over or cast upon, that these, these billows of shame are coming over him because he was ashamed to be associated with Jesus. What Peter will ultimately do is he's going to have to appropriate Christ's sacrifice for Jesus. You know how Peter said he would be willing to die for Jesus? What Peter didn't realize is he needed Jesus to die for him. And so do we all. And so the good news that Jesus says, I didn't come to heal the healthy. I came to heal the sick. And here we see one of the darkest pictures of it. And one of the brightest contrasts that the gospel is. And then incredible appreciation for God's grace. And God is going to restore. Jesus is going to restore Peter. And there's good hope. John Newton, when his memory was almost gone, he says, I remember two things. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And here's the word for you. Even when we fail the Lord badly, if we repent, God will restore us and use us again in his service. Once we experience restoration, it should always lead to renewed service. And what we see is that after Pentecost, Peter never wavered again. Peter was now not just needing Jesus' example. Now he had the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And here's an incredible moment. The guy who next to the campfire denies Jesus will one day stand up in the middle of the city and he will say Jesus is the Christ and 3,000 people are going to be saved on that day don't you know that in our mind sometimes we think well they know my sin there could have been a chance that some of the people who heard Peter that night were there at Pentecost as well you ever thought about that and have you ever thought about how it didn't hold Peter back? Some of you are letting your sin hold you back because you think that Christ's grace hasn't been sufficient to cover that. Again, that's resting in what these others perceive you to be. I love that Peter lives in the freedom of forgiven sin and he stands up and he's used for the sake of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, if you're in this room and in any way your sin is holding you back because of what you think other people's perception is, let me give you a new reputation. He who knew no sin became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And you stand and you serve, no matter how dark and how wretched your sin has been. Which gets us to where we close. There are three prophecies that are fulfilled in this passage. First of all, remember how Jesus along the way told the disciples what would happen to him? One of those was in Mark 10 where he says, We're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Did that come true in this text? Yes. All right. One of his other prophecies was that you will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
We saw that at the end of the passage that Matthew preached, that all fled, all of them, as Jesus was captured. And then Jesus said that Peter would deny him three times, obviously before the rooster crowed twice. Did that come true? Yes, all right. So three prophecies that Jesus said all came true. Now what I don't want you to miss, and Mitchell will move to close here, I don't want you to miss this prophecy that Jesus makes in this text. Go to verse 62. Bearing in mind the three prophecies Jesus said came true, listen to this. Jesus said, I am. And when he says that, he means, I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What I don't want us to miss this morning is if in the midst of this text, three of the prophecies that Jesus foretold came true, we have no reason to doubt the prophecy he tells in this text. And we have great hope to look toward it. That he will be fulfilled. And we know the rest of the story. We know that he went to the cross and we know that he went to the grave and we know that the grave couldn't hold him. And we know that he was resurrected and we know that he ascended and we know even now he reigns at the right hand of God. The warning, though, is there are many in our world who today sit in judgment of Jesus. But what Jesus says in this text is he is coming and one day he will sit in judgment of all of them. So I don't want us to be those who disregard this truth or deny this truth, but who declare this truth boldly and courageously with everyone that we meet. That Jesus is the Son of the Blessed and whatever it costs us to identify with him, students, if it costs you homecoming queen or captain of the sports team or a scholarship here or there, stand for Jesus. Don't worry about what your homeroom teacher thinks. Adults, if it costs you a job, if it costs you a friendship, stand for Jesus. And whatever it costs, the worst thing that could happen to you would be the wrath of God and Christ has already taken that. So what's a little spit in the face? I hope we're not raising people who boldly confess Jesus in this room but are quiet as mice when we go out into the city because that's where we need to roar about who Jesus is because our city is still lost and Jesus the Christ, the Son of God will come again with clouds of heaven and we are one day closer than we were yesterday one week closer than we were last week one year closer and we know it. So don't deny it. Don't disregard it. Don't mute it. Let it wave over you every day so that we live with gospel urgency and great gospel hope. Because how many of the people that you work with and live in the neighborhood need to know, even if you deny Jesus, it doesn't have to ruin you. Reconciliation is possible. They need the hope to know that it's not about our always being faithful. It's that Christ has been faithful in our place. Who doesn't need that that you know? Who doesn't need the hope of the gospel? Who doesn't need to stand and praise and say, Jesus, thank you, that even though they all lied, you stood and told the truth, and it cost you more than any other has ever paid. Now, how can we not worship in response to that? So this morning, if you've been disregarding, repent of that. If you've been denying, repent of that. And if you've not appreciated the fact that Jesus boldly declares, rejoice and praise. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for declaring who you were, not denying it. We desperately needed you to be faithful because much like Peter, we tend to be faithless. I pray you would help us. Help us at whatever the cost to boldly proclaim you are God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one who has done for us what no other could ever do. You are the one who has taken our sin upon him and the wrath of God that comes with that. So may we never be ashamed of who you are. May we never be quiet. May we never want to keep our relationship with you secret. Because for whatever reason, we may want to save our own little territory at that time or our own little power, whatever it is, our own little agenda. 
sweep all that away because the world needs to see people who are about your kingdom and not their own. For those who've come in this room today and they're not sure that you really will forgive them for some of the wretched things that we've all done. May this text be a reminder that through the depth of our sin, your grace is greater. Your grace is greater. So may they not be paralyzed by the sin. May they live in the freedom of forgiven sin. And may they go out and serve boldly, just like Peter did, who even though he had denied Jesus in front of some of them, stood on that day of Pentecost and boldly proclaimed in the power of the Spirit who Jesus was. May we do that. May we not be held back because we're fearful that some people know about our sins here and there. May they, through our obedience, know of our Savior. So let your word wash over us and let your spirit and your word do its work in our lives. Move us to praise Jesus. Move us to live for Jesus and help us to repent of any disregarding or denying that we've been doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing this morning.